welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the January 1st, 2024 edition of Sports News. My name is Philip Bradbury. Well, there's lots to unpack in the first edition of Sports News for 2024. The NFL playoffs are coming up, and decisions are to be made in the offseason, like what will happen to Russell Wilson. There are NFL bonuses that are going to be paid out, especially to players that haven't made an impact in a while, like Joe Flacco, who's kind of resurrected his career. There are mergers. Teams are moving on. And there are some retirements and the passing of a few sports legends. So let's jump right in. The merged XFL and USFL to be rebranded as the United Football League. This article written by ESPN staff writer Kevin Seifert, and it came out yesterday, December 31st. Former XFL president and CEO Russ Brandon will hold the same title for the UFL and former USFL president of football operations, Gerald Johnston, will lead the new league's football operations. Further details will be announced at a later time, including the number of teams and the cities that they will represent. But the UFL did confirm that its March 30 opener will be played between the league's 2023 champions the Arlington Renegades of the XFL, and the Birmingham Stallions of the USFL. A news release listed five UFL partners, the three XFL owners, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, and Jerry Cardinal of Redbird Capital Partners. The USFL owner Fox Sports, represented by CEO Eric Shanks, and ESPN, represented by Chairman Jimmy Pietaro. Disney ESPN was the exclusive broadcast partner of the 2023 XFL season. From day one, our mission has been to expand the game of football and be a league of opportunity, culture, and innovation, said Johnson. As we come together to create the UFL, we can build something powerful, exciting, and very cool for football fans a spring league with lasting impact for all the players with a dream to play pro football and the hardest workers in the room mentality to make their dreams come true. Said Shanks, Fox is football, and the success of the USFL has proven that there's a bright future for spring football. The opportunity to bring together our two leagues, each with a commitment to advancing broadcast practices Rural innovations and the community only furthers the potential of the United Football League and solidifies its spot on the sports calendar. The USFL and XFL played separate, partially overlapping schedules in 2023. The leagues announced an intent to merge on September 28th and received approval from federal regulators on November 30th. The XFL had previously discussed a partnership with the Canadian Football League in 2021, but negotiations did not lead to an agreement. So we have something to look forward to in the spring. Here's an article that was uh, written by the Associated Press and contributing are the ESPN News Services. 
This article came out on December 13th, and it appeared in publications worldwide. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin has reached a tentative agreement with the parent company of the NBA's Washington Wizards and the NHL's Washington Capitals to move those teams from the District of Columbia to what he called a new visionary sports and entertainment venue in Northern Virginia. The proposal, which would need the state's legislature's approval, calls for the creation of a $2 billion sports and entertainment district south of Washington in Alexandria, just miles from the existing arena. Yunkin said in an interview with the Associated Press ahead of a news conference Wednesday at the site. It would include an arena for what would be the state's first major professional sports teams, as well as the new Wizards practice facility, a separate performing arts center, a media studio, new hotels, a convention center, housing, and shopping. The Commonwealth will now be home to two professional sports teams, a new corporate headquarters, and over 30,000 new jobs. This is monumental, Youngkin said in a statement. Monumental Sports and Entertainment CEO Ted Leonsis appeared with Yunkin and city officials at Wednesday's announcement. He endorsed the proposal, thanked Yunkin, and said that he had goosebumps at the thought of the project coming together if all goes as planned. Monumental also owns the WNBA's Mystics, and in its news release Wednesday said that Capital One Arena, where the Wizards and Capitals currently play, could potentially become the Mystics' home again. The WNBA team played there from its inception in 1998 until 2018 and then moved to the much smaller entertainment and sports arena in southeastern Washington, D.C., where the Wizards G League team, the Capital City Go-Go, also played. The Mystics won the 2019 WNBA title at 4,200-seat ESA, and Monumental also said that Capital One Arena could host various other events, such as NCAA tournament games and concerts. Our intention is to expand here and to keep Capital One Arena in D.C. a great place, see, said Leonsis, a wealthy entrepreneur and former AOL executive. The new development would be located in the Potomac Yard section of Alexandria near Virginia Tech's ambitious innovation campus, a graduate school that's under construction and will focus on technology. To help finance the venue project, Yunkin will ask the Virginia General Assembly in the 2024 session to approve the creation of a Virginia Sports and Entertainment Authority, a public entity with the ability to issue bonds. Those bonds would be repaid partly by tax revenues from the project. We have reached a very clear understanding, really subject to finalizing the General Assembly's work, Yunkin said. Still, on Tuesday night, ahead of the announcement, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser unveiled a counterproposal aimed at keeping the teams. The legislation would direct half a billion dollars to modernize Capital One Arena. The modernization of the Capital One Arena will be an invaluable investment for continued success and our future prosperity, Bowser said. This proposal represents our best and final offer and is the next step in partnering with Monumental Sports to breathe new life and vibrancy into the neighborhood 
and to keep the Washington Wizards and the Washington Capitals where they belong in Washington, D.C. Bowser said that proposal has unanimous support from the D.C. Council. When the Capitals and the Wizards moved from suburban Maryland to D.C.'s Chinatown District in 1997 in what was then known as MCI Center, officials credited the arena with sparking a revival in downtown Washington. In recent years, critics who have faulted city officials for lax crime policies have said the neighborhood around the arena has suffered disproportionately. The proposed 9 million square foot Virginia Entertainment District would be developed by J.B.G. Smith, a publicly traded real estate firm that is also the developer of Amazon's new headquarters in neighboring Arlington, Youngkin's office had said. The administration expects the project to generate a combined $12 billion in economic impact for Virginia and the city of Alexandria in the coming decades and create around 30,000 new jobs. Subject to legislative approval, it would break ground in 2025 and open in late 2028. The event on Wednesday also drew a group of around 10 protesters who were barely audible from the tent where the announcement took place. Located along the Potomac, just across the water from Washington, the district would be accessible by all modes of transportation. Duncan's office touted in a statement, including from a newly opened metro station. Potomac Yard, just south of Reagan National Airport, is currently occupied by strip malls and other retail. In the 1990s, the site received serious consideration as the site for an NFL stadium, but negotiations between the team and Virginia fell through. The site is adjacent to the redevelopment sparked by Amazon's construction. Asked how a move by Monumental might impact the state's effort to lure the NFL's commanders to Virginia and whether those talks were ongoing, Youngkin had no comment. Legislation aimed at recruiting the football team to Northern Virginia fell apart last year. Though we'll keep you posted on that as things move forward. Here's an article on how quickly an athlete can fall from great heights. This article by Bridget Hyland, it was published on December 20th in njsports.com. Giants icon thought arrested former teammate got his life right. On Monday, former Giants running back Derek Ward was arrested in Los Angeles in connection to a string of alleged robberies. Tiki Barber, who was teammates with Ward on the Giants from 2004 to 2006, commented on the arrest. It's just sad to hear, Barber told the New York Post. He was from a rough environment and it felt like he was at a point in his life where he escaped it. It's shocking because I feel like he got his life right. According to the New York Post, Barber also said that he spoke to Ward about eight months ago and said that he quote, indicated that he was getting involved behind the scenes in the movie business. The Jets had selected Ward in the seventh round of the 2004 draft with the 235th pick overall. He was released that October and picked up by the Giants. In five years, 51 games with the Giants, Ward rushed for 1,750 yards on 342 carries and recorded five touchdowns. 
In 2009, he signed a four-year, $17 million deal with the Buccaneers, but was cut before the 2010 season. Shortly after that, he was signed with the Houston Texans. Ward announced his retirement in 2012 after an eight-year career in which he recorded 2,628 rushing yards on 551 attempts with 12 touchdowns in 93 games. Here's an article that appeared in Publications Worldwide, put out by the Associated Press on December 31st. A pair of former Detroit Tiger scouts sued the team, alleging age discrimination over their termination after the 2020 season. Gary Pellant and Randall Johnson filed the suit in U.S. District Court in Detroit, claiming a shift toward analytics was accompanied by a false stereotype that older scouts lacked acumen for newer scouting tools. They claim wrongful termination and post-termination employment interference in violation of the Age Discrimination and Enforcement Act of 1967 and violations of the Elliot Larson Civil Rights Act, a Michigan law that took effect in 1977. They also allege this the separate treatment age discrimination and or the separate impact age discrimination in violation of the Elliot Larson Act. They asked for back pay, front pay, and comp- compensatory and punitive damages. The Tigers did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Seventeen former Major League Baseball scouts sued the league, its teams, and Commissioner Robert Manfred in June in U.S. District Court in Denver. They alleged violations of the ADEA, along with laws in 11 states and New York City. Pallant, who is 68, is from Chandler, Arizona, and Johnson, 67, is from Valley Center, California. The pair said that they worked for multiple teams for more than 20 years before they were let go by the Tigers on August, on October 31st of 2020. The suit did not specify which other teams they worked for or when they were hired by the Tigers. Plaintiffs are among hundreds, if not thousands, of employees to be separated from employment with defendant in the last eight years as a result of a decision by the defendant and the Major League Baseball to replace older employees with younger ones, the complaint added. The suit added that after Manfred became commissioner in January of 2015, Major League Baseball endeavored to begin heavily recruiting younger scouts at the same time intentionally pushing out from the older scouts with prior knowledge, qualifications, expertise, and training based on a false stereotype that older scouts lack the ability to use analytics and engage in video scouting with the same acumen as younger scouts. The pair said that they were among four Tiger scouts over 60 who were terminated and that remaining scouts ranged in age from early 20s to early 50s. The suit said that 51 of at least 83 older scouts were let go among the 30 teams. Defendant claims they terminated plaintiffs due to the financial hardship from the COVID-19 pandemic. COVID-19 was a pretextual reason to terminate plaintiffs' employees' employment. So we'll keep you posted on that as things move forward. For those of you that follow the WNBA, Tiffany Hayes is set to retire after 11 seasons. This article, written by Alexa 
Phil Fu. She is a staff writer for ESPN, came out on December 13th. Tiffany Hayes, an 11-year WNBA veteran and a 2017 All-Star, announced that she's retiring from the league. It's the end, Hayes said on a Counted Me Out podcast. You can still catch me overseas. WNBA, this right here with the Connecticut Sun was my last season. Hayes, who is 34, was drafted number 14th overall in 2012 by the Atlanta Dream, where she played 10 seasons before being traded this past offseason to the Sun. It's a lot of things, Hayes said on her rationale for retiring from the WNBA. I really feel like I'm older now. I've got a lot of stuff that I really always wanted to get into, but I'm so busy because I'm playing year-round. Plus, my body, playing 11 seasons straight with no breaks every year, two seasons in a year every time, that's a lot. I just figured I'd focus on one thing and then summertime. I can turn up my businesses, turn up time with my family, and just live like that. I want to see how that goes. The Suns coach and general manager issued statements after Wednesday afternoon wishing Hayes the best and thanking her for their time together. It's bittersweet to hear about Tiffany's retirement, said Suns GM Darius Taylor. It's been a pleasure to have known and watched her play since her high school days, an underrated player with a big heart on and off the court. I would like to congratulate her on a wonderful career and thank her for being a part of the Connecticut Sun organization. She will always be welcomed back to Connecticut. Sun coach Stephanie White said that she's one of the few players in the history of the league that can get downhill and beat people with that quick first step. She is elite in every sense of the word. We wish Tip the best and congratulate her on an outstanding career. Tiffany Hayes averaged 13.6 points, 3.3 rebounds, and 2.4 assists across 317 career WNBA games while reaching the postseason six times, including most recently with the Sun, whom she helped advance to the semifinals. The 5'10 Hayes was an all-WNBA first-team selection as well as an all-defensive second-team pick in 2018 while compiling an extensive overseas playing career featuring stints in China, Turkey, and Spain. Hayes won national championships with UConn in 2009 and 2010, so best of luck to her in her retirement. Turning over to uh, basketball now. Former DePaul basketball player, Coach Joey Myers, passed away at the age of 74. This came out by the Associated Press and Publications Worldwide on December 30th. Joey Meyer, who played at DePaul and coached the Blue Demons to seven NCAA tournament appearances in 13 seasons, has passed away at the age of 74. He died in the Chicago suburb of Hinsdale, surrounded by family. The school did not provide any further information. Joey Meyer played for his father, Ray, for three seasons from 1968 to 71, averaging 16.4 points in 75 games for DePaul. The guard was selected by the Buffalo Braves in the 18th round of the 1971 NBA draft, but never appeared in a league game. 
Meyer served as an assistant for his father for 11 seasons before taking over when Ray retired after coaching DePaul from 1942 to 1984. Joey Meyer got the Blue Dam Demons into the NCAA tourney in each of his first five seasons. They reached the Sweet 16 in 1986 and in 87. Meyer went 231 wins against 158 losses in his 13 seasons as DePaul's head coach. Some of Meyer's top players included Rod Strickland, David Booth, and Tom Kleinschmidt. Following his time at DePaul, the Chicago native coached in the NBA's Developmental League and worked as a regional scout for the L.A. Clippers. This article by Renzo Pucciolo Salo, and it came out on Christmas Day on LarryBrownSports.com. There appears to be a clearer picture as to when Golden State Warriors star Draymond Green will be able to return from his indefinite suspension. Green has missed the Warriors' last six games entering their Christmas Day clash against the Nuggets. According to ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski, there is a general belief that Green's suspension will end within the range of 11 to 13 games. Woj indicated that the range presupposes that there aren't any setbacks in Green's recovery. The report added that Green has been subjected to periodic Zoom meetings intended to chart the All-Star's progress towards reinstatement. Representatives from the Warriors, the NBA, and the Players Union are reportedly included in the meetings with Green. Last week, the NBA discussed the reasoning behind the indefinite suspension. The league reportedly wanted to take a more rehabilitative approach with green suspension rather than one based on punishment. An 11 to 13 game suspension estimate would place the 33-year-old's comeback during the tail end of a seven-game Warriors homestand in mid-January. Golden State hosts the Detroit Pistons on January 5th, the Toronto Raptors on the 7th, and New Orleans Pelicans on January 10th. The three games that fall within the reported projected range for Green's suspension. The team will then embark on a four-game road trip after the lengthy homestand. The Warriors' success without Green likely does take some pressure off from the team to try to rush his return. Golden State is 5-1 and one over their first six games since Green was suspended for striking Phoenix Suns center Yusef Nurchik earlier this month. So we'll keep you posted on that, and we look forward to his return. In other basketball news, Stephen Kerr is disgusted by officiating after Nikola Josic's 18 free throw attempts. This article, written by Dendra Andrews, she is a staff writer for ESPN, and it came out on Christmas Day on ESPN.com. Members of the Golden State Warriors rolled their eyes as Denver Nuggets center Nikola Josic made his way to the foul line. He was about to attempt his 15th and 16th free throws. Josic ended the game taking and making 18 free throws, a career high for him and an NBA record for the most such makes without a miss on Christmas Day. It was also tied for the second most free throws overall for Christmas. 
The Warriors weren't necessarily mad at the officiating of Josek on Denver's way to its 112-114 victory. The countless bloody scratches he has after every game is proof of the contact that he works through. But Warriors coach Steve Kerr was displeased with how fouling has been refereed league-wide. I have a problem with how we are legislating the defense out of the game, Kerr said. We are enabling players to BS their way to the foul line. If I were a fan, I wouldn't have wanted to watch the second half of that game. It was disgusting. It was just baiting refs into calls, but the refs have to make those calls. The players are really smart in this league. For the last decade, they've gotten smarter and smarter. We have enabled the players, and they are taking full advantage. It's a parade to the free throw line, and it's disgusting to watch. Josic told ESPN that he isn't actively thinking about selling a call when he feels contact. His emphasis is on staying aggressive and hoping the whistle gets blown. But Warriors guard Stephen Curry said the whistle will always benefit the player who can make sure the official sees that there is contact, often by exaggerating. It does cater to the guys who can sell calls. There is physicality, but it's tough because it's inconsistent at times on either side, Curry said. On a night like tonight, when you feel there's physicality on one side and then ticky-tack on the other, it changes the complexity of the game. I'm not saying we don't foul, but consistency is key when understanding how you can defend. Nuggets guard Jamal Murray said as long as a player is selling a call versus flopping, there's no problem. In Josic's cage, Case Murray believes that he should get even more calls. As the reigning finals MVP, and he's averaging 5.9 free throw attempts per game and is hitting a career-low 79.5% of them. For Josic, his presence at the foul line opened up his entire game on Monday, propelling him to his 26 points, which included 4 of 12 shooting from the field. In the first half, Josic had attempted just four free throws and had only six points. The third quarter is where he found his game, taking and making 10 more foul shots. I was missing shots, so I was just trying to be aggressive in another way. Maybe play a little more physical, said told ESPN. It just happened to be that kind of night. This is the most I've ever had. Yosik's ability to draw fouls against the Warriors was a welcomed sight for the Nuggets. Entering Monday's matinee, the Nuggets ranked last in free throw rate at 73% and in the bottom 10 in foul shots attempted per 100 possessions. Part of the reason for such low free throw shooting, Yosik said, is because the Nuggets haven't been aggressive enough in working their way into the paint. It seems like even in transition, we are going to get the three-point more, so we, aren't giving, so we aren't giving us an opportunity to get to the line. Getting to the bonus early allowed the Nuggets to live at the line, shooting 32 free throws as compared to Golden State's 23, repeatedly stopping the clock and setting their defense. The Nuggets held Curry to 18 points on 7 of 21 shooting and Clay Thompson to just 9 points on 3 of 12 shooting, with all of Thompson's made shots being 3-pointers. Denver scored 20 fast break points to Golden State's 8. Over the previous 10 outings, the Nuggets were in the bottom 5 in fast break points in the league. 
It starts with defending and rebounding and then guys giving themselves up and running, says Denver coach Mike Malone. Or if you don't get the ball, get to the corner so guys have more space to operate. That's how we want to play, and we were able to do that at a high level tonight. All right, turning to football now. This article by Adam Schefter and Jeff Lakewalt. They are senior writers for ESPN, and it came out on December 30th. The Denver Broncos have benched Russell Wilson for now, but they eventually will have to figure out the most effective way of breaking up the nine-time pro quarterback, and that will not be simple. The Broncos face four potential options as a means of moving on from Russell Wilson this offseason. The Broncos simply can release Wilson before the fifth day of the new league year in mid-March, thereby escaping the $37 million in additional guaranteed money that would trigger at that time. This would leave Denver with an $85 million debt cap charge in 2024, which would represent the largest on one player in NFL history. The Broncos could opt to use a post-June 1st designation on Wilson's release, which would split the dead money over two years, $35.4 million in 24 and $49.6 million in 2025. This would be the Broncos' more likely choice if they release Wilson, says league sources. A post-June 1st release designation becomes even more likely considering that the Broncos have a number of expiring player contracts in 25 and currently are slated to have well above $70 million in salary cap space with some salary cap websites projecting Denver to have as much as $100 million. And that year, making it more palatable to absorb some of Wilson's contract in 2025. Other NFL teams have proved this season that winning can be done with plenty of dead money on their cap. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Los Angeles Rams are carrying over $80 million in total dead money against their 23 salary caps, but still are in postseason contention. Broncos' third option, according to league sources, would be a trade. Wilson's contract contains a no-trade clause, giving him the ability to veto any deal that he does not approve. But there have been unconventional trades in recent years where a team lands not only a quarterback, but additional draft compensation to help out the trading team, in this case, Denver. In March of 2017, the Houston Texans traded quarterback Brock Osweiler, a 2018 second-round draft pick, and a 2017 sixth-round pick to the Cleveland Browns for a 2017 fourth-round pick that saved Houston $16 million in guaranteed salary. I remember Brock Osweiler was a Bronco for a little while. In 2021, rather than cutting Jared Goff and absorbing a $65 million dead cap hit, the Rams traded the quarterback and a 2021 third-round pick, a 2022 first-round pick, and a 2023 first-round pick to the Detroit Lions for quarterback Matthew Stafford and absorbed only a $22 million dead cap hit. To trade Wilson, the Broncos would have to sweeten the pot for any acquiring team, which some league sources believe is unlikely but also not out of the question. 
Denver's fourth option, which seems to be the least likely at the moment, would be for Wilson and the Broncos to somehow reconcile their differences to keep their relationship alive for a third season. If and when the Broncos move on from Wilson in March, they will have they will have paid him $124 million over the two years of their relationship. They paid him a $5 million roster bonus uh, last March, plus $30 million in salary, a $50 million signing bonus, and the $39 million guaranteed in 2024. Despite this week's benching, the Broncos insist that nothing has been finalized regarding Wilson's long-term future with the organization, and they refuse to rule out the possibility that he somehow could return. But Wilson, who believes the end of his time in Denver is coming, posted the following message on social media on the night that he was informed of his benching. God's got me. Looking forward to what's next. What's next is Wilson serving as Denver's backup on Sunday behind Jared Stidham, who went through this exact scenario one year ago with the Las Vegas Raiders, where he replaced Derek Carr for the final two regular season games. Stidham's contract makes him that much more appealing to Denver. He agreed to a two-year, $10 million deal that included $5 million fully guaranteed on the first day of the legal tampering period in March. Broncos coach Sean Payton, when announcing Wednesday that Stidham would start over Wilson against the Chargers, said the decision was strictly based on winning and to get a spark offensively. But Wilson said Friday that the Broncos told him earlier this season that they would bench him if he didn't waive the $37 million injury guarantee. According to Wilson, the Broncos' decision-makers approached him after Denver's victory over the Kansas City Chiefs on October 29th. They definitely told me that I was going to be benched and all that, he said. The whole bye week, I didn't know what was going to be the case. I wasn't going to remove the injury guarantee. This game is such a physical game, and I've played 12 years and all that. Wilson has publicly stated that he would like to remain with the Broncos, but he admitted that he has considered the possibility that he continues his career elsewhere. I hope that it's here, he said. I hope that it's here for a long time. If it's not here, I'll be prepared to do that somewhere else, but I hope that's here, and I genuinely mean that. Well, and fast-forwarding to yesterday's game, the Broncos won, and Russell is still benched, reason being that they don't want him to get hurt and having to pay out that uh, all that um, money. All right. Joe Flacco is among NFL players with millions of bonus dollars at stake. This article by Michael Rothstein is a staff writer for ESPN, and it came out on December 30th on ESPN.com. A little over a month ago, quarterback Joe Flacco was sitting at home, not on an NFL team for the first time since his last year of college at Delaware in 2007. The Cleveland Browns called and wanted to fly him out for a workout. They signed him to the practice squad on November 20th. He was signed to the 53-man roster on December 14th. With it came a contract that included incentives that seemed unreachable, 
but Flacco's improbable journey has been one of the more compelling storylines of this season. The 38-year-old has won four straight games, including Thursday's victory over the New York Jets that clinched the Browns' first playoff bid since 2020. It also secured an incentive. For every win, Flacco makes $75,000. The total is $225,000 for three wins because his first win on December 10th was before he signed the new deal. This is obviously a very unique situation for me, Flacco said about his journey this season after the game. So a lot of different emotions are going through my head. The bonuses escalate dramatically the deeper the Browns advance in the playoffs. He is one of a handful of quarterbacks with contract incentives within reach as the regular season winds down. So here's a look at some of the incentives according to roster management system that will be in play over the final two weeks and all the way up to Super Bowl 58 on February 11th. Josh Allen, Buffalo Bills quarterback. Allen's been one of the hottest players in the league and has worked his way into the MVP conversation. He's tied with Miami Dolphins quarterback Tua Taigo Viola as the third betting favorites, according to ESPN Bet. If Allen does win the MVP, he'll get a $1.5 million bonus. If the Bills win the AFC Championship game and Allen plays 60% of the offensive snaps, he'll make an extra million dollars. If the Bills win the Super Bowl and he plays 60% of those snaps, he will make another $2.5 million. According to ESPN's Football Power Index, the Bills have a 14.8% chance of making the Super Bowl and a 7.4% chance of winning it. And there's Joe Flacco again for the Cleveland Browns. If the Browns win a wildcard game and Flacco plays, he'll make another $250,000. He would add another half a million dollars for playing in a divisional round victory. Flacco would receive another million dollars for playing in an AFC title game win. And if the Browns win the Super Bowl and he plays, he'll make an additional $2 million. The most he can earn is $4.05 million. The FPI, which is the Football Power Index, gives the Browns a 42.8% chance of making the divisional round, a 10.4% chance of making the conference title game, and only a 2.7% chance of making the Super Bowl. Another quarterback, Baker Mayfield of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Mayfield is on his fourth team since 2021 but his days of bouncing around may be coming to an end after a strong performance this season. Mayfield has the Bucks one win away from an NFC South title. Mayfield has played 99.7% of Tampa's snaps, and he will earn $1 million if he finishes the season above 85%. It will jump to $2 million if the Buccaneers make the playoffs, and the FPI, or the Football Power Index, has their chances at 84.3%. If Tampa makes the playoffs, Mayfield will earn a quarter of a million dollars in every playoff game in which he plays at least 75% of the snaps. 
Mayfield can also earn $300,000 for each of five passing categories in which he finishes either in the NFL top 10 or the NFC's top five. Passing yards, currently 12th in the NFL, 7th in the NFC. Completion percentage, 17th and 8th. Passer rating, 9th and 5th. Touchdown passes, tied for 6th and 5th. And yards per pass, 12th and 7th. So those are not unapproachable. Also, quarterback Gardner Mishu of the Indianapolis Colts. The Colts signed Minshew before drafting Anthony Richardson with the number four pick, and Minshew became a valuable insurance policy after Richardson injured his throwing shoulder in week four and needed season-ending surgery. Minshew has helped the Colts double their win total from a year ago. Minshew will make $2 million if he plays 60% of the Colts' snaps this season, which is more than half of his $3.5 million salary. It's an easy one for Minshew to achieve as he's played 83% of the snaps. My situation is a really cool thing, Minshew said. But honestly, more than anything, if you play and play well, all that takes care of itself, so it's cool to get it. Minshew may also cash in as a free agent in the offseason. Another quarterback, Dak Prescott of the Cowboys. Prescott will earn a million dollars if the Cowboys both win the Super Bowl and he plays at least 50% of the snaps. Dallas currently has the fourth best odds of winning the Super Bowl at 10.6%, according to FPI. Tyrone Smith of the Cowboys, he's an offensive tackle. He has played on 68.1% of Dallas's snaps. If he keeps that up, he'll make an additional $4.5 million. His playing time markers rise 5% starting with 50% playing time, and it begins with a million dollars for 50% all the way to $9 million for 90% of the snaps. DeAndre Hopkins, wide receiver for the Tennessee Titans. With 61 catches for 939 yards and six touchdowns, Hopkins has made a half a million dollars for his yardage. If he reaches 950 yards, that will escalate to $750,000. And if he gets to at least 1,050 yards, it will become a million dollars. He's close to earning money for his catches as well. If he gets to 65 catches, he'll make a quarter of a million dollars. 75 catches, it'll jump to half a million, and for 85 catches, it will be three-quarters of a million, and for 95 catches, it will be a million dollars. His six touchdowns have netted him $500,000, and if he gets to eight touchdowns, it will be $750,000, and for 10 touchdowns, a million dollars. After playing 70.6% of Tennessee's offensive plays, he's set to make $350,000. He must play at least 65% to get that. If he gets up to 75% to 84%, it'll become $500,000. So Hopkins has already made, or is likely to make, $1.35 million with potentially more to come. Darius Williams, he's a cornerback for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Williams has four interceptions, so he's already made an extra half million. If he reaches six, it will become three-quarters of a million, and with eight interceptions, a cool million dollars. 
With his playing time at 92.4% of the defensive plays, he'll set to pass the 90 percentile threshold and make a million dollars. If he dips under 90% but remains over 85, he'll make half a million dollars instead. Calais Campbell, he's a defensive lineman for the Atlanta Falcons. Campbell, with five and a half sacks, has already made an extra half a million dollars. If he reaches eight sacks, he'll pick up another half a million dollars. He's played 62.3% of the snaps. If he remains over 60%, he'll make another half a million. If the number creeps past 70%, he will end up with a second half million dollar bonus. It's very secondary, Campbell said, but it is business and you do want to maximize your value. So if you get yourself in position to make some money, you want to make it. And Jadivion Clowney, he's an edge rusher for the Baltimore Ravens. Clowney, with eight and a half sacks, has already made a million dollars. If he reaches nine sacks, that will escalate to $1.75 million. He's also played 57.8% of the snaps. If he keeps that rate level, he'll make a half a million dollars. If he reaches 60%, it'll go to a million. In the unlikely event he hits 70%, it will be 1.75 million. Odell Beckham Jr. is a wide receiver for the Baltimore Ravens. With three touchdowns, Beckham has made $250,000. If he gets to five, that will jump to a half a million. And if he reaches seven, it will be three quarters of a million. With three, with 34 catches, he's made an extra $250,000. And it will escalate to $500,000 if he hits 40 receptions and $750,000 if he can get to 50 receptions. Running back Joe Mixon for the Cincinnati Bengals. Mixon with nine total touchdowns eight rushing and one receiving, needs one more to make $250,000. If he reaches 12 total touchdowns, that will jump to $350,000. Then there's Danielle Hunter of the Minnesota Vikings. He's a defensive end. With 15 and a half sacks, Hunter has hit all of his markers, making $3 million for surpassing 14 sacks. Levante David, He's a linebacker for the Buccaneers. David will likely earn $2.5 million because one of his incentives was defensive improvement from last season. Tampa Bay has intercepted more passes this season, 13, than last season with 10. David can also earn $200,000 if he plays more than 65% of the snaps. He's at 83.8 right now. And the Bucs rank in the top 10 in points allowed. Tampa is number 11 with 302. He'll earn another $150,000 if he reaches five sacks, and he's currently at four and a half. If he hits the 65% playing time mark in the regular season, he'll earn $125,000 per Tampa Bay's playoff win. And finally, there's Bud Dupree of the Falcons. He's an edge rusher. Dupree has five sacks, and he's played 63.8% percent of the defensive snaps. If Dupree reaches seven sacks, he'll pick up million dollars, and if he plays 70 percent of the snaps this season, he'll get another million dollars. That's an amazing amount of money for playing football. Of course, there's all the punishment that goes along with that. <laughs> 
it really takes a toll on your body. So you're going to need all that bonus money for your rehab. For all you baseball fans, there's some sad news in the baseball world. Frank Howard of the Washington Senators has passed away at the age of 87. This article written by Matt Chudell on October 30th, and it appeared in the Washington Post. Why I didn't see this before, I have no idea. One of baseball's most feared hitters, the gigantic slugger belted the final home run for the old Washington Senators in 1971. For those that do not remember the Washington Senators, the Senators moved and were replaced with an expansion Senators team for 1961. The old Washington Senators became the new Minnesota Twins. The expansion Senators would become the Texas Rangers in 1972 and baseball would not return to the city until 2005 when the former Montreal Expos became the Washington Nationals. When Major League Baseball returned to Washington in 2005, the Nationals played their games at Robert F. Kennedy Memorial Stadium. It had been 34 years since the city had a baseball team, but the stadium still held remnants of its last star before that game went away. Deep in the upper deck, Several seats were painted white, marking the longest home runs hit by Frank Howard, who, during his seven seasons with the woeful Washington Senators, was recognized as one of baseball's strongest and most feared hitters. At six foot seven and about 270 pounds, he was a towering force on an otherwise forgettable team, launching monumental home runs that sometimes flew more than 500 feet. When the Nationals arrived in RFK Stadium more than three decades after Mr. Howard's final game, players looked at the distant white seats in the upper deck and could not believe a baseball could be hit that far. They asked me, where was home plate back then? Washington Post sports columnist Thomas Boswell wrote in a 2016 online chat. I'd say right where it is now, give or take a foot or two. Not one player ever believed me. They considered it impossible. Mr. Howard, who twice led the American League in home runs and remained an enduring favorite of Washington's disenfranchised baseball fans, died October 30th at a hospital in Aldi, Virginia. The cause was complications from a stroke, says his daughter, Catherine Braun. A college basketball star at Ohio State, the Bunyan-esque Mr. Howard chose a career in baseball instead, signing with the Los Angeles Dodgers. At a time when many players were relatively slight, San Francisco Giants superstar Willie Mays was about 5'11 and 180. The bespectacled Mr. Howard stood out on the baseball diamond like a redwood. In one of Mr. Howard's first games with the Dodgers, he hit a foul ball that knocked out a teammate, Duke Snyder who was leading off third base. Mr. Howard was the National League Rookie of the Year in 1960 and then seemed to fulfill his promise two years later when he belted 31 home runs with 119 runs batted in and a 2.96 batting average. In 1963, when he helped lead the Dodgers to a four-game sweep over the New York Yankees in the World Series, he hit what was called the longest double in the 41-year history of Yankee Stadium off of Hall of Fame pitcher Whitey Ford. Yankee shortstop Tony Kubek recalled the moment to the Miami Herald in 1991. Howard hit a line drive right over my head. 
I jumped for it and missed it by about a foot, maybe two tops. There was a, a speaker in the left corner, 457 feet away. The ball hit the speaker and bounced back like a bullet. I don't think it was higher than 10 or 12 feet all the way out. In the fourth and decisive game of the series, Mr. Howard launched a 450-foot home run off of Ford to propel the Dodgers to a Dodgers to a 2-1 victory. He was the only batter, Ford said later, who ever scared me. After slumping in 1964, Mr. Howard was contemplating retirement at age 28. An executive with a cardboard box manufacturing company in Green Bay, Wisconsin, where Mr. Howard had an off-season job, urged him to give baseball another chance. I think I'm a realistic guy, Mr. Howard told Sports Illustrated at the time. I have the God-given talents of strength and leverage. I realize that I can never be a great ball player because a great ball player must be able to do five things well. Run, field, throw, hit, and hit with power. I am mediocre in four of those, but I can hit with power. Before the 65 season, he was traded to Washington and regained his form, winning the American League's Comeback Player of the Year award. In seven years with the Senators, he built a reputation as one of baseball's leading sluggers and as one of the city's most beloved athletes in any sport. In May of 1968, during his third season in Washington, Mr. Howard had a hot streak that has never been matched in baseball history. Over a six-game period, he slammed 10 home runs and drove in 17. One home run in Detroit bounced atop the 90-foot-high roof covering the upper deck and left the ballpark, wrote Post reporter George Minot Jr., who estimated that the hit went at least 550 feet. During his streak, Mr. Howard told the Hartford Courant in 2001, I was thinking somebody's going to flip me, throw at him pretty soon because it's part of our business. I thought someone was going to put a part in my hair because they didn't. So I figured I'll settle in and keep cool. It was a fun week. Man alive, you'd like to crank like that for a couple of months. As his legend grew, Mr. Howard acquired a host of imposing nicknames from Hondo to the Washington Monument to perhaps most evocally the Capital Punisher. Several pitchers and infielders recounted how they leaped to catch hard-hit line drives off Mr. Howard's bat only to watch as they kept rising all the way into the outfield seats. Around the American League, attendance rose whenever Mr. Howard and the otherwise hapless Senators came to town as fans flocked to see how far he might hit the ball. Despite a spectacular three-year peak from 68 through 1970 when he hit more home runs than any other player, Mr. Howard fell short of earning a place in the Baseball Hall of Fame. He spent years as a minor league manager dispensing a folksy kind of wisdom to his players. I remember the encouragement I needed when I was young, he said in 1976. I had no idea what I was doing until I was 30 years old. Like old Teddy Williams says, you dumb hitters, by the time you know what to do, you're too old to do it. Well, that's all the time we have for sports this week. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of Sports News. My name is Philip Bradbury. Happy New Year to all. A prosperous and safe New Year to everyone. From all of us at the Audio Information Network of Colorado, soon to be after sight. Stay tuned. If you enjoyed this program, 
please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.